we miss out when we don't sit and reflect on the sacredness of those moments and the sacredness of, yeah, just her body and her holding you and her even, you know, folding an envelope and standing in front of a fax machine. I mean, I believe and and sort of what I'm arguing in Awalita faith is that's where God is, you know, that's where God is moving and working and in those sacred, seemingly ordinary, but not at all ordinary, you know, God is intimately acquainted with our grandmothers in those moments and, and just in life in general. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 122. My guest this week is a brand new friend. Her name is Kat Armas. She is the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. If you listen to last week's interview with Michael F. Byrd, he said one of the really important things we need to do is to read deeply in our own tradition and then to read outside of our own tradition. And so this week and uh, the the next episode of the podcast will be focusing on bringing in stories outside of our own and helping us lean into the wisdom and truth that can be held in different kinds of ways, especially if we're wanting to move away from an empirical kind of truth lens, as we discussed with Brian Zond and then again with Mike Bird. So I'm thrilled that I get to bring Kat Armas to you today. If you don't know her, she is wonderful. Kat is a Cuban-American writer and speaker. She hosts the Protagonistas podcast. She holds a Master's of Divinity and a Master's of Arts in Teaching. She knows her stuff. She has written for a great many different magazines and outlets. And uh, I really think you're going to enjoy what she has to share with us today. She is also a brand new mom. She was pregnant uh, when we recorded this and recently had a baby. So have a listen to this and then make sure you go and follow her uh, cat underscore armas on Instagram. And there'll be much more details, of course, in the show notes along with the transcription for this episode. Here we go. Kat Armas, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. I've been just following you for a little while on Instagram and uh, just been reading through this beautiful book, Abuelita Faith, and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm glad to get to know you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and, and to be able to chat with you about it. I have not read a spiritual reflection about grandmothers before. Really? It's your first one. I mean, I don't think many people have. Yeah, but um, I'm so happy that you are. And I'm hoping, you know, that it's having you reflect on your grandmothers, whether biological or not. It is. It certainly is. Both of my grandmothers were women of faith. There's uh, a lot of Christian faith, like I think in some directions, five or six generations in in my family. Mm -hmm. So I come from a long line of various different Protestants. and. Uh, and they they were really formative for me, but I hadn't, I haven't often been given reason to think about that, right? Or to think about just, I guess, like the the theological impact of mm-hmm. their, not just their teaching, which is like the obvious, but I guess like their lived embodiment right. of what they believed. I'd love to to hear just at the high level a little bit about what this is to you, uh, what Abuelita faith is, and and what brought you to to birth this thing 
Yeah. Well, I think um, what you just described is is part of it, right? I think um, so many of our grandmothers and our abuelitas um, have been overlooked um, because of how I mentioned in the book, um, whether it be, you know, their gender or their socioeconomic status or whatever it is, you know, my grandmother um, wasn't formally educated. And I think that that is a, a big part of it, right? Um, so many of our grandmothers were not formally educated. They didn't have that opportunity. And so you know, in Western culture, we're, we're sort of, you know, taught or trained to look for the folks who have the quote unquote traditional form of knowledge, um, you know, and that is as far as theologically goes, that is formal theological education, you know, and so that's where we've been trained to find or learn the most about God. Um, and in my experiences, you know, once I stepped into the world of formal theological education, I think that's where I felt the most distant from God, you know, um, because so much of what I was learning or who I was learning from was so separate from my lived experience. Um, and so, uh, you know, so different than how, you know, what was taught to me as the norm was not my norm growing up. And so it made me question very much, you know, my, my upbringing, my experiences, who I am, my cultural um, background and my ethnicity. It, it had me questioning, well, well, then what's my place here? You know, what does God have to offer me or what do I have to offer to my community? Um, and so, yeah, so I think that that's sort of where this, um, this book idea or just this, you know, in general, just life existential crisis, you know, that I began wrestling with this sort of abuelita faith is, um, you know, once I, I was raised Catholic and then once I transitioned to Protestantism and like I said, and began formal uh, seminary education, I began to question my grandmother's salvation. You know, I really thought, oh my goodness, she's not saved. But yet I had decades of memories of her committed to the church and committed to, you know, her community, you know? And then, so that's where I began reflecting, wait a minute, you know, I learned the most about God growing up in informal spaces, um, not from, you know, the, the, white men behind the pulpits and in the classrooms, but, you know, around the dinner table um, with my grandmother and, and watching her sew and all of these embodied experiences. And that's where I learned the most about God. And so I wanted to um, invite folks to, to wrestle with that too. You know, who, who is unnamed that um, you have been formed by, you know? And so anyway, I'm, I'm really glad that you have been, yeah, wrestling with that. Yeah. That's really my book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, you you mentioned like ways of of being and knowledge forms of knowledge, right? I wasn't something that I guess I had had a lot to to really think about until I read last year, the year before. I read Saving the Gospel from the Cowboys by Richard Twiss, and mm. and part of his yeah. whole thesis is the format of this thesis is not functional outside mm. of an empirical context, outside right. of this ivory academic white tower. Uh, mm the the ways that we teach the ways that we know uh and so he's like even even uh playing the white man's knowledge game right is this problem that we have mm -hmm. um and right. uh, and i that that was the that i guess opened my mind to start hearing and seeing some of these things and realizing oh yeah there's all these different ways of knowing and of being right yeah. No, I think that that's key, actually. You know, that's what I'm really trying to get at, at Abuelita Faith is, 
is that there are alternate ways of knowing and being uh, in the world, you know, and I think that that's, um, you know, when we, when we talk about decolonizing, you know, I, I know that that's become a buzzword, you know, and it's kind of thrown around, but um, when I, in my writing of Abuelita Faith, I, I wanted to wrestle with the notion of decolonization, but, and obviously there's different ways you can do that, but I, the, the way that I wanted to wrestle with that is, you know, what is knowledge and who is wise and who gets to say, right, you know, um, who gets to say what is wisdom or what is knowledge, and so I'm sort of wrestling with this you know, even biblical ideal of, uh, idea of wisdom, which, you know, in if you read, there's just so many different ways that you can understand or apply wisdom. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it was, it was fun to wrestle with that in the Bible and then also just wrestle with that in um, across history with our, our abuelitas and our grandmothers and how they engage wisdom in their everyday life. Yeah. So can I read from you? Yeah, this is, you wrote this, uh, when you're unpacking the, the the concept, Abuelita theology stems from the reality that in Latin religious culture, matriarchal figures such as Abuelitas preserve and pass along religious traditions, beliefs, practices, and spirituality. They function as live-in ministers, particularly because the privilege to receive formal religious instruction is often unavailable. Thus, Abuelitas are the functional priestesses and theologians in our familias. And please forgive my bummer. No, you did great. <laughs> um, that was really interesting to me because at the very at the very outset, when I began to read the book, I thought, okay, you're presenting an argument. You're uh, you're you're suggesting that we need to pay attention to to this thing, uh, our grandmothers, and especially, I think, especially my 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 sense is that you are are offering something here for other uh, members of Latin culture, but also indigenous groups and, and, and so on, right? Like you could just be writing to white people or be a white person writing blah, 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 blah but you are offering something authentically from yourself to your own community. Mm. But not are you just, I realized in that sentence, I'm like, oh, oh, she's not just trying to tell me that like advocating for this thing. This is what's already happening. Right. This is just oh, normal yeah. life. Yeah. So let's let's stop uh, ignoring it or throwing it under the rug or, or devaluing the work the, the the work that's already happening and been happening f- for all of human history. Yeah. No, that's so good, and I'm so glad that that you you know thought about that or, or kind of got that um, because that and it is one of my arguments is just you know women, abuelitas, you know, our grandmothers, they've been doing the thing, you know, and whether it's been in the background or whatever, you know, they've been doing the thing forever. Um, And I think we're the ones, and by we, I just sort of mean dominant culture in general. Dominant culture is the one that's been missing out, you know, because this has been happening. And those are sort of the stories that I'm trying to bring up, right? The stories of women um, who have, you know, used their bodies and their art as protests or have, you know, there's does, I mean, countless women throughout history. And so I try and, you know, bring in these stories and these anecdotes and say, see, look, you know, um, and, and another thing that I, I sort of bring up is this idea of, you know, um, inviting, the, you know, marginalized women or whatever to the table and I'm saying, no, they have their own tables, you know, <laughs> like my grandmother had her own table. 
It was her table. She said it every day and we were invited to sit at her table and, you know, and she was the host and we were the guests. And I think that that's really important. Again, thinking about this idea of decolonization, I, I say that it's like a decolonized notion of hospitality, you know, Christianity, we love to talk about hospitality, but but it's very much so that we are always the hosts or the dominant culture is always the host. And, um, and exactly like you said, no, I mean, people have their own tables, you know, they've had them forever. Women have been um, doing the things, you know, um, protesting, like, like I mentioned, um, being subversive, fighting for their communities. Um, yeah. And for themselves, you know, all of these things for, for centuries since the beginning of time. And, and it's just a matter of us, you know, turning our gaze and our focus and paying attention. Yeah, that's so good. I, love, <laughs> I can feel internally um, <laughs> this process that I've come to identify as learning <laughs> and being corrected <laughs> in my thinking. And yeah. even just as you say that, like the, yeah, uh, I'm laughing at my own self and my, you know, attempts <laughs> to be a, a gentle, wise listener. And it's like, oh yeah, invite people to the table, you know, and, and, and you're know, like, yeah, or just bear in mind <laughs> that they right. have the tables and have been doing the thing. And I can feel my body reacting to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's great. And I think it's part of it is just, you know, um, learning how to be a good guest. You know, I think that's something mm -hmm. that I, I've been wrestling with a lot. You know, how can we so, be so, good guests? I don't think, Chris, I don't, okay. Sorry for interrupting you. Oh, no. I don't think evangelical, especially American influenced Christians have any concept of what it means to be a guest. No, not at all. I mean, if you think about it throughout history, what do Christians know about being guests? You know, I mean, if you think about, you know, the colonial period and folks just arrived in places that weren't their own and just made themselves, you know, I mean, they didn't learn from anyone or try to, or, you know, we think about it now and when we think of, again, the dominant culture doesn't know how to be a guest. And, and again, it's perpetuated by Christianity. Christianity, you know, we want to be the heroes and we want to be the, the, you know, evangelizers and the ones to offer the good news. And we don't ever think of how we can receive or what we can learn or just sitting at someone else's um, feet and learning from their wisdom. You know, we think mm -hmm. that Christianity or Christians in general, obviously I'm generalizing, but you know, for so long, we, we think that only we have something to offer the world. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I don't think that, I think being a good guest is, is um, something that, that we would do well. Uh, and by we, again, just the dominant culture would do well in, in learning and <laughs> embracing. Okay. Yes. That's so real. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And you know, right. When, even when someone comes to your home uh, and is a weird guest, or they come in and they assert themselves <laughs> or they start right on things, you know, and I have a couple of friends that I'm thinking of specifically who do this. <laughs> and I can tell as an empath that they are themselves uncomfortable and do not know how to conduct themselves. And mm -hmm. the only way they have is to assert their dominance. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like, oh, that's so weird. That's such a good point. Okay. So, uh, Paint a picture for me, if you would, of some of the things that we miss out on when we're not uh, paying attention to this format of faith and this way of, of, of being. Yeah, I mean, so much, right? But I would say um, the, the main thing that I think about is, is, 
and I mentioned this in the book, I think that we, we talk about being made in the image of God in an individual way, right? Like I'm made in the image of God, you're made in the image of God. But something that I had been reflecting on as I was working on this book is how the image of God is also collective. You know, um, we, each of us, you know, carry a piece of the image of God or however you want to phrase. I don't think anybody fully understands what that means, but all of us together in our own, you know, the fullness of what it means to be human in all of our distinct cultures and all of our distinct, you know, everything. (laughs) Um, I think together we get a fuller image of, you know, who God is. And I think that, you know, when we um, yeah, aren't seeing not just the image of God individually in a person, because it's easy to say that we, we see that, but what can we learn about God um, just and who God is um, mm-hmm. from folks who, who are just trying to survive? And I think that that's something that I'm, I really try and lean into in Abuelita Faith is this idea of survival and how survival is in and of itself a holy endeavor, you know, um, for most folks across the world. I mean, that is just the daily struggle is what am I going to eat today? What am I going to feed my child today? There's no five-year plan or there's no, you know, it's just literally, as I mentioned in Awalita Faith, it's, it's the Lord's prayer, you know, give me my daily bread, like what I need today, my strength, my food, my sustenance today, um, to make it till tomorrow, you know, and then there, there's something sacred and intimate, and holy about that, right? Just in and of itself. It doesn't have to be Christianized in the way that we, you know, it's just, that's what it is. And when I read the Bible, um, you know, as I was working on this book and researching scripture, I noticed that that is most of the stories in scripture, right? Like folks just trying to live, you know, and, and these stories are, again, hyper-spiritualized and they're, you know, the story of Ruth and Naomi and, oh, and Boaz, Boaz is Jesus or whatever. I mean, (laughs) but it's just kind of like, well, it's also a story of two women that really are just trying to, you know, ensure that they don't die, you know, from being widows and that, you know, that they're taken care of. Um, And they enact their agency and their creativity and their ingenuity um, in order to just live. And, you know, they are called blessed. I mean, there's a whole book written about them. They are in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, these are not just passing stories, you know, same thing with the story of Esther or just so many women, um, you know, their struggle to survive is a holy and sacred um, endeavor. And, and it is noticed and blessed and whatever you want to say by God. Right. Um, And so that's something that I think that, um, that those of us with varying levels of privilege, we really, really miss out on, um, yeah, what can we learn about life and God and how God interacts with people and how, and how God is intimately in the details of, of just, survival. And we don't know much of that because many of us, you know, carry varying levels of privilege. And so it kind of cushions us from really experiencing that intimate, you know, connection with the divine. Yes. Yes. That's so true. Even you just, you mentioned the Lord's prayer, right? I was thinking the other thing beyond daily bread that just popped into my mind, as you said, that was like, forgive us our trespasses as, as we forgive others, right? Like so many of us in, in more privileged position, who's trespassing against us, man? Like, right. oh, oh, because, because I'm, I'm a Christian in a Western nation and I feel like <laughs> I'm being marginalized and all right. that. I'm like, like when right. so many people on the margins have a boot on their neck, like, yeah. oh yeah, there's that guy who rapes mm-hmm. people. There's that guy who right. murdered my son. Like right. the, the 
the closeness to evil being perpetrated against you right. feels so much closer uh, than I think yeah. again, most many folks like myself are are familiar with. Right. No, that's good. I think that that's true. Um, yeah. And I think that that's something that um, in the beginning of, of, of my book, I talk, I share about Rigoberta Menchu and she's a Kichemayan indigenous um, activist. And I just love her story because it sort of reminds me of what you were saying that she um, ended up leading her community and her people in uh, literally fighting against the colonizers or the oppressors in, in Guatemala and yeah. her indigenous people. And it was through her reading the Bible and reading the story of David and Goliath and saying, wait a minute, we are literally David and the colonizers, right? The government who was trying to exterminate the indigenous people to take their land, you know, is Goliath. And so that was sort of like, what motivated her to lead her people in our, you know, to take up arms against, you know, the colonizers. And I think that, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, there are so many things that we are shielded from, um, those of us who carry varying levels of privilege, um, and that, and we don't understand the Bible in the same way, even, you know, we don't understand, uh, the stories within it. Um, that's why we, you know, uh, like to say, you know, hyper-spiritualize or over-spiritualize so many of the stories because we have to, in order to connect with them, you know, but as I mentioned, Abuelita Faith, so many of these stories are about our grandmothers, you know, they're about, you know, when our grandmothers read the story of the, you know, the woman at the well, they say, oh yeah, that's me. That's my story. You know, um, or when they read the story of the, the Canaanite mother who is seeking, you know, healing for her daughter and she talks back to Jesus. I mean, those are the stories of our grandmothers and most grandmothers across the globe, you know, that we, you know, we have to sort of figure out what this story means, but for many folks, you know, it just means it is what it is and it's, it's real life and it's lived experience. That's so amazing. Yes. Because of course, like, uh, okay. Is it Elijah or Elisha and, and the widow with the, Oh yeah. You know, uh, like, uh, this is our last bread and right. our last flower and we're going to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and I've only ever been taught that story in the context of like becoming a man of great faith who raises people <laughs> from the dead, like right. very charismatic upbringing here. Um, if you're not raising three dead people every day, you're not a good Christian. <laughs> and so yeah, but like that's the context that I've been taught that story. And that's always the connection point is like, have great yeah. faith. And yet oh, yeah. I'm hearing you say the majority of humans, especially women on this planet, would be like, no, that's a story about not dying. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a story yeah. about last Monday. Right, right. Yeah. No, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think of that in the same, um, I mentioned the story of Tabitha and um, Peter and Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. And I just think it's so funny. I mean, it's not funny, but I just think it's so interesting that when you read any translation, literally any Bible translation, um, and you know how they have the the chat or the paragraph or chapter sort of headlines. But he chose to insert. Right, exactly. Like, you know, whoever, you know, just decided to write, okay, this is what this chapter is about, you know. And if you read it right before Tabitha's story, I mean, it always says like Peter resurrects someone or something, you know, it's about Peter resurrecting someone. Right. And when I read that story, I mean, that's the last thing that I'm paying attention to is Peter doing anything. I mean, I look, I read that story 
And you have this woman who clearly was, you know, this, this person, this very important person in her community because A, she was resurrected. I mean, how many people in the New Testament besides Jesus are resurrected? Like three? So why is she resurrected? She's called a disciple. There are people by her bedside weeping. And all we know about this woman is that she made clothes for her community. And that is, I mean, that is a sacred, what I argue is a sacred thing among many communities across the globe, you know, making art embodied theology. I mean, those are all beautiful things. And yeah, I mean, the point of that story in many Christian circles is, oh, look, Peter resurrected someone just like Jesus, you know? Um, But no, you know, if we even read a couple chapters in Acts right before that story, We know of the whole debacle between the Greek speaking Jews and the widows They were being overlooked and all of this was happening. And here we have Tabitha, you know, a couple cities down the road doing the very thing that people were neglecting to do, but yet she's overlooked, you know, it's, it's all about Peter and what, you know, so it's all about, oh, you know, let's be like Peter. I don't know. You know, how about let's be like Tabitha, Um, you know, uh, yeah. So I, I thought about that as you were mentioning that story, because that's what we do so much with so many of these stories. You 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 mentioned the, the clothing and, and, and you you've got a fair bit about the creation mm. of clothing. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that kind of community tactile spirituality, because yeah. I feel like again, that's something that um, OK, like I'm I'm like this picture of globalism i've i've lived in five countries i don't live in the same country that i was born in none of my children live in the same country they were born in and i can only talk to my mother through zoom or facebook or whatever and all my grandmothers are dead and i feel mm-hmm. i do feel this disconnection at an ancestral level at times from place and space and family right and i feel this there's a longing when i read you right you say some of these stories you talk a little bit about, about that yeah, no. And I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, very common, right? Like your story is very common. I think we live in a globalized world and, you know, even I, I don't live in Miami where I was raised and I've never lived in Cuba, you know, which is something, um, yeah, that, that what I talk about in Abuelita Faith, it is this idea that, you know, we're always connected to land and we're always connected to place. And while I don't, while I've never lived in Cuba, I do believe that Cuba lives within me, right? It is a part of me. Um, and, you know, and I'm pregnant right now and I believe that it's going to be, a, you know, it's a part of my, my child, you know, um, because as we read in scripture, place is so important. I mean, the story of the Israelites is all about place and land, you know, um, but to answer your question specifically about, um, you know, the the whole sewing and the, this embodied theology, I mean, that's something that for me uh, growing up, you know, that was a, a huge part of my upbringing is just watching my grandmother make clothes, you know. And of course, you know, as a, as a child, I never thought of that as a theological or spiritual thing. Um, but as I reflected on it, you know, the older that I got and, and the more that I, I was reflecting so much and again, just scripture and embodied theology. And it was really the story of Tabitha that sparked that in me and seeing, you know, her story and thinking, wait a minute, all we know about this quote unquote disciple who is resurrected is that she made clothes for the widows in her community. And that tells me that that is a sacred and holy and beautiful act. And that there's something about that. Um, that we need to pay attention to. And as I'm reading that, I thought, that's, that's my grandmother's story. You know, as I mentioned, like, these are the stories of so many of our grandmothers. And um, the story of Tabitha is the story of my grandmother in many ways. And so reflecting on her life and how, you know, she was so intentional with her 
her clothes making, how she created entire worlds with her hands, with a needle and a thread and how, you know, she, um, created community within our, you know, within her home, you know, with the women in her, in, in our neighborhood or, or just, you know, in, in our community, you know, and she created this, this, this feeling in this space and this sacred space. Um, and I believe that that is something, again, that is overlooked, um, how women have been using their bodies throughout history um, in ways that uh, not only honor God, but that reflect, you know, the, the creativity of God and reflect the intentionality of God, you know, um, you know, we see that I, I kind of point that back to even God creating clothes in the garden for Adam and Eve, you know, that was such an wow. intimate and intentional act. And these are ways that I think that um, many women throughout history have connected with, with God and have connected with their communities. And, and we have so much to learn about a sort of embodied, lived um, way of being and knowing that is sacred. Um, we'll take a quick pause to say thank you to my patrons. Big love to Janet, who is my latest patron. Thanks for signing up. Friends, I love doing this podcast. It brings me so much life and joy. I'm so glad to be able to share it with you every week. It's also a huge investment of time and energy. So if you are listening to the show, would you please consider uh, joining up? You can become a patron for $3 a month, but if you give $10 a month, I'll send you a handwritten card in the mail. How cool is that? Anyway, Grateful that you're listening. Grateful that you're here. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Thanks so much to everybody who supports. You mean the world to me. Let's get back to the show. I also reflect on women who have used the, you know, their, their hands and their bodies. Um, you know, there's a group of women, they're called the Arpilleristas in Chile, and they literally created with their hands, they sewed protest signs um, about, you know, the, the, the government was taking and, and people were disappearing. Their family members were disappearing. There was so much injustice. And these women, you know, were using their skills and their passions and their gifts and their art, you know, to protest against the injustices that were happening, you know, in their communities. And so I think that um, that's not something to be overlooked. And I think that, you know, if we believe that, that God gives us gifts and talents and passions, you know, to, to do good in the world, and that's one of them. Um, so, yeah, so that's something that has been very beautiful for me to reflect on both in, in, you know, history and in my community, but also in scripture, because that is something that is so much in the Bible. Totally. That's so interesting. I love that. I'm, 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 thinking about my grandmother uh it was my, my maternal grandmother i was a lot closer to and we often lived with with them and and it's just funny and i'm trying to think is this just cognitive bias because you're saying this to me but but so much of what i think about is all surrounding her body and mm, yeah high highly physical partly she uh, was paralyzed in one leg and so mm. she she wore a brace and so she, mm. she had a shuffling sound that would kind of follow mm. her around. There's this tactility. And I remember, I remember all these, I remember her standing at the fax machine, mm -hmm. getting the prayer list and sending wow. prayer requests on to the next people. I remember wow. her teaching me how to, how to make little envelopes. And we would, I, I was just telling my eight-year-old this, uh, we would cut out calendars and take the photo and then, and then I would fold and cut them into an envelope and I would sell envelopes <laughs> to, to all the neighborhood people. And uh, my grandmother used to make, I don't know if you know those cards where it's like you stamp, 
you stamp the card and you sprinkle the kind of stuff on it and then you kind of melt it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's so. some kind of crafty art thing. But this again, mm-hmm. this is something that my grandmother used to always, I can picture my grandmother ironing. She used to come to our house and iron all of our laundry. <laughs> oh. And it's like, and it's so funny because at the time, none of that was meaningful to me as like, a, right. especially as like a young boy, none of that seemed meaningful to me. But as I think back on it now, I mean, more than, more than anything, my core formative memory of my grandmother is of her holding me at 15 or 16 when we were they were selling the family vacation home and it was mm. the last time I was going to see it yeah and I was so emotional and didn't know as a teenage boy how right. to unlock all that mm. and she just came and held me wow and I just remember sobbing on her shoulder yeah uh, that's so weird. And, and feeling kind of embarrassed because I had my buddies over there, you know, but I'm like, this is some, something that now I can see the sacred spirituality of all of her simple life. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. You know, my mother says, I remember my mother said to me that, that her mom lived vicariously through her, through her children mm-hmm. and her grandchildren, mm-hmm. that she didn't have any career after her first child was born. And right. she just, her focus was on children and family and community. And, mm. and, and yeah. how little value we have for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that about your grandmother. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we miss out when we don't sit and reflect on the sacredness of those moments and the sacredness of, yeah, just her body and her holding you and her being there and all those again those intentional and intimate details of even you know folding an envelope and standing in front of a fax machine I mean I believe and sort of what I'm arguing in Awalita faith is that's where God is you know Mm -hmm. that's where God is moving and working and uh, yeah and doing all the things you know in those sacred seemingly ordinary but not at all ordinary um or, or yeah, they are ordinary, but not at all, not sacred, right? Um, moments. And I think that that's something that, you know, what a beautiful thing for our spiritual life um, when we can reflect on that and, and recognize that, man, that's where God, you know, God is intimately acquainted. Um, yeah. With our grandmothers in those moments and, and just in life in general. And I think that that's something that, has been so beautiful for me, you know, as I reflect on this abuelita faith and, and how I just try and live out an abuelita faith in my everyday life. You know, it's funny because I, I am, you know, formally educated, you know, I have two masters and I'm getting, I'm, you know, I'm getting more degrees um, next year, you know, I'm starting, uh, I'm continuing my theological education next year, but but still, you know, even in that, I'm still trying to every day fight against the, well, that that's not the most important, you know, um, th- those moments where I was mostly educated or, or formed theologically were in those, you know, in front of the fax machine moments or, you know, in my grandmother's arms as I wept moments. Um, yeah, I, that's where I see God. And so I think that that is it's incredible to be able to shift, you know, sort of our focus and see life in, in that way. Yes. I love that. Okay. I have a question and this, this is a bit more of a tender question. And even in asking it, I don't even like, I don't even like it, but I'll explain. <laughs> okay. Um, what, how do we interface this with grandmother trauma or mother trauma? 
where, where these figures in our life have also been, in some cases, the authors of great pain and great oh, yeah. toxicity in our lives. And that one of the reasons I don't like the question is like, just because, so let me just like, it's not as if all the other teachers that we've had have not also traumatized. Right. It's, it's like, please don't hear anybody no. listening to me saying, suggesting that grandmothers or mothers have the market cornered on trauma. Cause we can talk all day as we have on the show before about abusive men. <laughs> <laughs> But if we are leaning into this, I know for some folks, that may be a stumbling block. No, that's a great question. And that's something that, um, yeah, I think about a lot and I wrestle with a lot. And um, so, you know, even in my own culture, you know, machismo is is a huge part of my culture. And so something that I I mentioned in in Abuelita Faith is this idea that, um, you know, an, an Abuelita theology is often called a kitchen theology, right? Because it's formed in the kitchen. And, you know, when, and that's a beautiful thing, right? When family members are sitting around the table and it's like this beautiful, informal, um, communal, familial thing. But at the same time, um, it's a kitchen theology because that's often where our grandmothers are relegated to the kitchen. And so that is their space um, in many ways because they're it's they're forced to be there or they have no other option than to be there. And so um, things like patriarchy and machismo, um, which our grandmothers perpetuate. Right. Like not saying that that's not something, you know, my grandmother um, yeah, very much held to traditional and cultural norms. Um, and even still to this day, you know, there are many things like body shaming and, and just different things that our grandmothers, um, because of whether it was the, the generation that they come from or whatever, the culture and all these things. Um, so that's 100% um, a part of the tension, right? Um, when thinking about this Awalita theology. Um, I don't know if you've read um, uh, Yolanda Pier- Dr. Yolanda Pierce's In My Grandmother's House, mm. um, but it's sort of a sister book to mine in a way. And, and she is speaking from the perspective of Black women. And, and this is something that she talks a lot about. And the reason why I brought it up is because her and I had a conversation about both of our books and sort of, you know, kind of dialoguing with this idea and this tension of, of survival and how survival is complicated and survival, while it can be holy and beautiful and sacred. And, and I, and I believe that it is like, I believe that just the struggle to survive is holy and sacred, but at the same time, survival forces folks to do and, and, and just be and exist in ways that, um, yeah, that, that they may not necessarily, um, want to, or, or things that may not necessarily be, um, yeah, helpful. Uh, you know, I, I think of the story of Tamar and how, you know, she was forced to, you know, put her body in, in, in situations that I don't know if she, you know, maybe wanted to, or was proud of, I don't know, you know, um, but that's because, you know, for many women across history, survival forces folks to do things that make many other people uncomfortable. And so, when I think of this tension, um, and I think about it again in my own life, you know, as I reflect on on my story, and obviously, you know, my book wasn't focused on that aspect of the story, but there are times where I'm, I I had to wrestle with that, and and yeah, and just wrestling with the with the reality that survival is complicated, and we can't um, ignore or, or just you know brush over that reality and say, oh well, you know, it's fine. She was, you know, no. Um, but I think it's, it's important to sit in that tension, sit in the tension of, you know, um, it can be beautiful, but it can be really hard and really, yeah, not beautiful in many ways. 
Um, but but part of you know what I I try and lean into in Aurita faith is that tension. Is you know Christianity likes to gloss over things or or make things um, you know um, forgetting the word sorry pregnancy brain but <laughs> uh, platitudes. You know we like to jump to platitudes or um, but life is is lived in that very complicated tension of beauty and pain and hardship and, you know, all the things. And so I think that it's important to name it. And so I'm glad that you did, because I think that that's part of it is naming it and sitting in that complexity. Mm, That's good. Yeah, that's really helpful. Friends, I highly recommend this book to you, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength by Kat Armas. And uh, it means like, it's like a, like Abuela is like the formal grandmother. Yes. Abuela is the word for grandmother in Spanish. Um, and then in Spanish, we add ita to the, or ito, you know, to the end of words. And that's, excuse me, sort of like a term of endearment. And so, you know, it's like, it literally means my little grandmother, but it's just, you know, it just sort of means like my beloved grandmother or yeah, something along those lines. Right. So I'm going to say like Nana, like this is like, yeah, between like grandmother <laughs> and like Nana or granny. Right, right, right. And obviously whatever translates for each of you yeah really really enjoying this cat where can folks find uh, more on you and i know you've got a podcast yourself yeah so my podcast is called the protagonistas or the protagonistas um and i speak to women of color in church leadership and theology uh and um you can find me on instagram or on twitter primarily at cat underscore armas or my website catarmas.com i try and you know update with things i've written or worked on and so if you want to check that out as well Kat, would you pray for us as we, I guess, yeah, seek to to listen and to be reoriented in this really kind of sacred, family, beautiful way? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, God, we are so thankful for just opportunities to talk with one another and opportunities to learn and to be challenged and to grow and um, to investigate what it means to be people of God or people that are seeking to um, bring forth your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as you mentioned. And so we just ask that you would allow us to give us eyes to see folks um, who have been doing the thing um, for so long, who have, have their own tables, who um, are struggling to survive, who are living, their lived experiences are um, holy and sacred moments and, and, and endeavors. And yeah, there's so much to learn, or we have so much to learn from um, folks in the margins, our abuelitas, our grandmothers, and um, yeah, would you give us eyes to see that? And we're so thankful for um, the opportunity to be able to chat about these things. Um, and uh, we ask for your wisdom in, in alternate ways of being and knowing. May we learn from our grandmothers in that way. And it's in uh, Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kat. Friends, go hit the show notes at jonathanpuddle.com. You'll find the transcription for this episode. You will find links to order Kat's book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. And it's a great, great book. I really recommend it. I've been uh, learning and growing, and uh, she is so well it's just a, such an international perspective on uh, on our nanas and grannies and, and abuelitas, and it's really cool. Uh, it's definitely invited me into something uh, 
a, a new angle on my faith and on multi-generational faith. I think this is something that the church is wrestling with. I've, I know uh, folks in my church who are elderly and are feeling like they don't know how to serve. They don't know what their role is anymore. And so I really think this is important. So head over to jonathanpuddle.com, uh, click podcast, you'll find the show notes, order Kat's book, and go follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else. All right, friends, uh, I'm going to take a break for a couple of weeks. I've got episodes in the can, excited to share stuff with you, but I am traveling. I am leaving this week to go to the UK for a few weeks. I'm visiting a friend and I'm getting started on a new writing project. So we'll take a little pause on the podcast, but don't worry, we'll be back very soon. And I'm thrilled uh, my next guest uh, shares his journey of being diagnosed autistic and how that changed his life and how we can do better for our autistic brothers and sisters. So that'll be on the show in a few weeks. All right, my friends, God bless, grace and peace to you all. We'll talk soon.